Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Get that going. I hope we're recording. So, uh, oh yeah, it's the last thing I probably should mention. If you haven't heard already, I am now recording these talks uh, and turning them into podcasts. I have a podcast as well. It's available through iTunes and all the other stuff. I've only got one up there, the last one, because I've been recording them. Uh, with video before that, um, so I've stopped doing that. So there's a podcast, same name, Controversy in Church History. You can check it out if you can't make it out to these talks or you don't feel like trudging out through eight-degree weather to get here. So so let me get to the, uh, get to the topic at uh, hand. By this sign, conquer. Um, if you don't know, how many people, by the way, do know um, Constantine the Great. That's what he's usually called in Christian history. Most of people know him. Some of you don't know who he is. Um, and for those of you who don't know, just start out with the basics. Um, one of the most famous events in all of world history happened in uh, the year 312, uh, in October of that year, when uh, Constantine, uh, who was a Roman general, Roman uh, emperor, uh, fighting against other uh, claimants to the imperial throne, marched on Rome, and um, according to two different sources, two different Christian writers, had either a vision or a dream. Uh, one writer, uh, the writer Lactantius, who became his advisor after his conversion to Christianity, wrote that before the, the uh, decisive battle uh, at the Milvian Bridge outside of Rome in 312, he said, quote, Constantine was directed in a dream to have the heavenly sign delineated on the shields of his soldiers, and so to proceed to battle. He did as he had been commanded, and he marked on their shields an X with a perpendicular line drawn through it and turned thus around at the top, being the cipher of Christ. Having this sign, which is the Cairo, symbol of Christ, uh, his troops stood to arms, unquote. The historian and bishop Eusebius, uh, who was also an apologist for Constantine, wrote later on, much later than this in the 330s, in his life of Constantine, uh, they had a vision. This I'm quoting, quoting here. Quote, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross in, of light in the heavens uh, above the sun and bearing this inscription, um, conquer by this, or in tutonike in Greek. Uh, at this sight, he himself uh, was struck with amazement, and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle, unquote. So we have this momentous event. He turns to the Christian God before the battle. He goes into battle. Um, and next day, uh, his forces, who outnumbered his opponent, Maxentius, uh, defeated uh, Maxentius, uh, which tried to retreat over to the Tiber River, which is on the bridge there. In the chaos, the bridge collapses, uh, and uh, Maxentius and his army, most of them, are drowned or trampled to death on the escape. And then he rides into Rome uh, as the sole ruler of the Western Empire. And from there, publicly embraces Christianity. And so a couple of the things why this is a controversial subject has been for a long, long time now in Western civilization. First question is, okay, did... Constantine really convert. This is usually the thing when people bring up, okay, was this a sincere conversion to Christianity? Or was this merely a political move on his part? This is usually the way it's framed, and we'll answer this in the course of this uh, lecture. <clears throat> That's the first thing we want to consider about this great event. Um, the third thing is, though, is why is it still controversial? It is. To this day, there are still people who, uh, we'll talk about this, want to see the not the, but some of the problems in the church as being traceable back to Constantine and his embrace of Christianity, which uh, 
if, just, if you don't know, understand exactly why this is so important. Uh, when he becomes emperor, by the way, he does not make it the official religion of the empire. He's not the uh, emperor that does this. But he does publicly start literally embracing it. He literally starts giving it money, building uh, basilicas for it, donating land to the church. So the church has, if you like, it becomes, first of all, legally tolerated for the first time, had never had any recognition from Roman state, whatever, been a persecuted religion. Um, but he gives it a sort of official uh, quality it never had before, official recognition it never had before. And there are some people who think this is basically this is basically a bad thing. So why is this a bad thing? Let's, uh, we're going to get through this today. And, uh, but start with some of the history behind this, what happened and why. And we have to go back to the Roman Empire itself. Um, because his conversion takes place around 312. Um, but there's a history there throughout the 2nd century and 3rd centuries, which explains why uh, it happens the way it happens. And in fact, um, by the year 300, um, relationships between Christians and the Roman state have fundamentally changed for a variety of reasons. And one big reason is the Roman Empire is going through a crisis uh, over the course of the 3rd century, over the 200s. Um, they have lots of military and financial problems. The first of these problems is that um, they have a lot more enemies than they had in the past. For the couple of centuries, there hadn't been major threats on their borders. By the middle of the third century, they have several. They have barbarian peoples, of course, who are, we usually think of them as being invaders, but they, they cause problems on the borders. But worse than this was the rise of a new Persian empire on its eastern border, which will inflict several crushing defeats on Rome in the third century. This is a problem they have to face. Um, defeats them several times throughout that, that century. They also have a problem of the debasage of the imperial coinage because since the days of uh, Nero, actually, uh, Roman emperors, and you have to remember people didn't understand inflation in the ancient or the early modern world, in fact, um, they started sort of clipping coins so they were no longer pure silver. This debased their value. It meant the stuff that people were giving out in the streets, uh, emperors were, uh, was kind of, it was debasing its value. So this, this caused huge financial problems. It also caused a lot of direct problems for the army. The reason being that by the early uh, years of the 3rd century, uh, emperors increasingly um, granted pay raises to soldiers, which of course, because the, because the uh, coin was inflated, did nothing for them. Um, in fact, the only time they actually got real money from the emperor is when he gave them direct donations of gold for their efforts. Um, and so what begins to happen is, starting in the year 235, um, armies throughout the emperor began to set up their own generals as rival emperors, mainly so they get paid <laughs> in a lot of ways. So you have a lot of these things uh, merging into um, merging into <coughs> those problems there. You also have natural disasters uh, besetting the Roman Empire in the middle of the uh, uh, century in the 250s. A series of plagues strike the empire, uh, which is um, uh, devastates their population at a time when they need, of course, more. Um, uh, more revenue from taxes and things of this nature, all of which contributes to increasing uh, debilitating political instability. Civil wars. Um, in 235, the emperor Severus Alexander is assassinated, and for the next 30 years, um, between his death and the accession of Diocletian in the year 285, nearly all Roman emperors are assassinated or die in battle. Um, and so... This opens up uh, wars, opens up uh, the uh, uh, empire to invasions, again, from people like 
those barbarian peoples on their borders, the Franks, the Goths, and so forth, uh, but also, of course, to those Persians in the east. Uh, and this also, by the way, represents, this also represents a serious problem they have in the army because more and more of these uh, emperors are coming from the army, and they're coming from the army on the borders. Literally almost all of these, um, these emperors, including ones, including Constantine, actually, um, this is sometimes referred to as the barbarianization of the army, will come from, you know, newly Romanized people on their borders, uh, people like um, Maximinus in the uh, year 235, who takes over for Severus Alexander, uh, was a Goth from Thrace. Uh, there's someone in, six, in, the, in the 240s who becomes emperor named Philip. He's called Philip the Arab. So you have people from all over the empire basically using this instability to try to make themselves emperor. So you had this involvement in politics which is destabilizing the empire. So what happens to get people out of this is that you, one of these soldier emperors turns out to be kind of an administrative genius. And his name is Diocletian. Diocletian is born in what is today modern Croatia, on the Dalmatian coast, probably at Salona. Uh, he was from a peasant background. Uh, he was a peasant soldier, and um, probably not very educated. He didn't really come into the record until later in uh, his career. Uh, and when he does, he comes as a general on the Danube River. We'll show you the map in a second to give you an idea where this is at. <clears throat> in the um, eastern part of the western half of the Roman Empire. And uh, he shows himself to be capable, to be a good general, to be a good leader. Uh, he's responsible for border defense uh, in this area. He eventually, after 282, uh, comes to the attention of another one of these other soldier emperors, Carus, and is promoted within his, uh, in his command, becomes command of the imperial uh, bodyguard, achieves uh, a notable place in his household. Uh, and what happens is he serves nobly under him. In the midst of a campaign in 284, Carus goes to east to try to defeat the Persians. He gets killed. He leaves the empire to his two sons, one kid named Numerian, the one named Carinus, ruling different parts of the empire. Numerian in the east, Carinus in the, uh, in the west. Numerian dies mysteriously uh, at Nicomedia on the Black Sea. Uh, a couple of years later, and, uh, and then uh, a couple of years, a uh, year after that, in, two, uh, in 285, Carinus is killed in battle near Belgrade, uh, and Diocletian becomes sole ruler of the empire. So, what makes him different, and what brings the empire back to stability, because his, his reign sees this, is that, as I mentioned before, he is kind of an administrative genius. And the thing that he is known for more than anything else is the so-called Tetrarchy. Because what Diocletian had come to realize at this point, when he becomes emperor, is that the empire is too big and too complicated for any one person to rule. So starting in uh, 293, he establishes uh, what would come to be called the Tetrarchy. Uh, from then on, at least in his lifetime, a little bit afterward, um, there will be two senior emperors, uh, which he calls Augusti, Augustuses in, in English, um, to which he will add two junior emperors called Caesar or Cesare. And the arrangement would provide for an imperial presence, a greater imperial presence in both halves of the empire. And that, in fact, is what he's going to do, is divide up the empire into east and west into four different prefectures that can be ruled more or less by the senior, uh, senior Augusti with his junior Caesar, uh, Caesar basically, in each uh, area. 
Uh, each tetrarch had its own staff and could be on the move throughout the various territories so that the em uh, emperors can actually govern more directly those areas that had been got getting out of control in the previous uh, 100 years or so. Further than this, he actually began increasing, if you like, the administrative apparatus of the state. Um, there had been before this 50 military provinces within the Roman Empire. He doubles this number. Uh, and he apportions these, um, these uh, um, provinces under what he 12 dioceses, each with their own vicar, uh, the latter under those four, uh, four uh, prefectures. He also separates permanently civilian offices from military ones. They had never been so in the history of the Republic, or the Empire, I should say. Um, and he also divided up the uh, army into border troops, which weren't very effective because they were essentially a militia, which didn't, <laughs> wasn't very well trained, didn't do a whole lot, from the so-called palace troops, which were the real imperial army, usually, not usually, but often led by the uh, emperors in person. And what this meant was, by the way, is that, I don't have time to go into this too much detail, the Roman Empire became much more uh, of a truly absolute form of government than it had been before. If your ideal of the Roman Empire is... You know, Dom DeLuise from uh, World History of the World Part One, where he's, you know, wallowing around in his treasure, taking a treasure bath, and just sort of, that's not really the way Roman emperors actually acted prior to the fourth century. Uh, the Roman Empire was fairly loosely governed up until this time period. Uh, and what he's doing basically is making, giving um, Roman emperors a lot more direct control over the areas they're supposed to govern. That's the whole idea of this. Um, I sort of move on those administrative forms. One other thing he also does is that he uh, institutes a new type of court ceremonial for the emperors. And this may not sound very serious, but hear me out. Um, he wanted to raise the dignity of the imperial office. Again, you had all these emperors being whacked by soldiers. You want to make sure that the imperial office is something so awe-inspiring people don't want to do this, or at least not be psychologically predisposed to go killing them. And so what he did was he began adopting types of etiquette at courts that were actually, by the way, some scholars think, people of time thought, were adapted from Eastern Oriental models, probably uh, Sasanian Persia. Um, so that, for example, when you came into the emperor's presence, you could no longer stand. You had to prostrate on the ground before him. This is called adoratio in Latin. Um, if you've ever seen priests being ordained, they go fall flat on their faces. That's what you have to do after Diocletian when you go into the emperor's presence. He also instituted a policy of seclusion by which he made access to his person much more difficult than it had been before. Why? The more distant you are, the harder you are to get to, the more august that you seem. He changed the form of address, uh, the way you address an emperor. Emperors had never been called emperors. Um, they had been called princeps, first citizen. They had been called imperator, which is a term given to victorious generals in the battlefield. Uh, from Diocletian onward, they were called dominus uh, noster, uh, lord and master, which again has connotations, of course, of you know master-slave relationships. It was meant to uh, emphasize the, uh, the emperor's absolute authority, uh, in other words, uh, and give it a sort of sheen that it had not had before. Now, I mention all this, because I'm not just mentioning this because I like talking about imperial courts. I'm mentioning it because it has a real purpose, and this just to say, uh, to show you a map here, of where the empire is divided up. You can kind of see in the inset there the four prefectures and where the different Caesars, the different emperors would rule. You see the west, out west there, modern-day France, uh, Italy, and uh, parts of the Balkans, 
uh, Greece and parts of the Balkans, southern Balkans there, and the eastern part of the provinces over that way, um, and how they're divided up and how they uh, um, worked. <clears throat> this, by the way, is an image of the uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, from his arch, his uh, triumphal arch, um, making sacrifices to uh, Jupiter, uh, to the king of the Roman gods, the Roman pantheon. And I mention that because, if you don't know, Roman emperors had traditionally been responsible for um, what's sometimes called the Pax Deorum, uh, the peace of the gods in the Roman state. Uh, and I mention that because uh, his scholars now recognize that what Diocletian was doing in trying to re uh, reform the empire, try to increase its security and stability, um, had as its basis um, uh, a theological uh, content. Uh, one historian, in the words of one historian, quote, theocratic absolutism, absolutism that required as proof of political loyalty the total and unconditional adherence of all citizens of the empire to one universal state religion, unquote. Um, the Roman Empire had been kind of more or less not operated that way prior to the 4th century. There had been persecutions of Christians before this, but they were sporadic and mostly local. Uh, as long as you were you know, fairly obedient in other spheres, uh, they would leave you alone. The Christians were very unpopular, that's true enough. And again, you have people attacking them in local areas, that's true enough. Uh, there had been one attempt at a, a, a sort of empire-wide persecution before this didn't last very long. But as part of, seemingly as part of this campaign to shore up the empire, to uh, make sure that the you know the Roman state had a right relationship between uh, the people and its gods. Diocletian initiates what sometimes is called in Christian history the Great Persecution. Um, and in fact, and I don't have time to go into too much, too much detail. This is actually preceded by an attack on the Manichaeans. If you know who these people are, time to go into this stuff. But the Manichaeans are a a religious sect which kind of kind of parasitic on uh, the Christian religion in some ways. They're a dualist sect who believe that the universe is uh, divided between an evil principle and a good principle. Um, they are attacked even more vicious, viciously in 302. Uh, not only does he round up their leaders and uh, execute them, he ex condemns them to be execution by burning to death. Uh, and I'm not, still not clear on the reasons why they get such harsh treatment. They're treated very harshly even before the Christians. But um, probably under the influence of his eastern colleague, his eastern colleague's name, uh, the eastern emperor is named Galerius because he's an emperor in the west, the Augustus in the west. Uh, he issues an edict in February of 303, which among other things requires uh, Christians to hand over their scriptures, their sacred books, and having them burnt. Uh, calls for the demolition of churches, um, the banning of uh, meeting places uh, for worship. And uh, people who refused to do this were deprived of any rank, if they had any, and thus made liable to torture and summary execution, and as well as prevented from, uh, prevented act from taking action in court. If these Christians were imperial freedmen, as they'd been freed slaves, they were to be re-enslaved. In fact, this first edict didn't actually specify what penalties were supposed to happen to Christians who refused to do all these things. Uh, but it seemed to imply a death sentence, and it certainly was applied, um, in, uh, especially in the eastern parts of the empire. Uh, in fact, by the way, the initial um, edict, uh, this uh, initial edict actually, initial two or three edicts actually, uh, were only supposed to be imposed, those harsher punishments, on the upper classes and imperial civil servants, as they were trying to target upper class Christians and people in the imperial administration to get them out. They were targeting their leadership, in other words. Uh, in the West, um, the um, uh, 
the um, edicts were never enforced that harshly. Uh, churches were demolished, but for the most part, you didn't have quite the same orgy of executions that you'd have in the East. On the other hand, in the East, um, they were enforced in some ways to the letter. Those areas were controlled by Diocletian and his, his Caesar Galerius. Um, the first edict was uh, shortly followed by a second one, which called for an imprisoning of all clergy. Uh, then the third one released them, but uh, requiring them to make a sacrifice to the emperor, to his guardian spirit. This is the sacrifice that was so uh, objectionable to the early Christians. You had to burn incense before a statue of the emperor, emperor's guardian spirit. Um, Till finally, in the year 304, uh, a fourth edict was issued, which essentially uh, imposes this sacrifice to the emperor's uh, guardian uh, spirit on all Christians. Uh, one thing to note about this, by the way, I mentioned how things were worse in the East. It seems that basically um, only the first uh, first edict was actually ever enforced in the western half of the empire. So what you would have is, if there would be any, uh, any uh, doubt about this, after the persecution ended, um, there were debates about, okay, what do we do with people who apostatized during this persecution? Should we let them back in? And in the West, they basically never mention um, making the sacrifice of the emperor's spirit, probably because it was never enforced, those edicts in the West. They only mention people handing over the sacred uh, scriptures, basically, to the, to the emperors. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> At this time, is the Vatican around? And, yes. And is that influence? Because obviously that would be in the West. Sure. Let me uh, let me uh, um, cut you off there. The, the, there is no Vatican at this point. There's no Vatican. There's no church. The Bishop of Rome has not anywhere near that sort of power to do anything. So he's there, but he nothing can do to stop it. So uh, that's a good question. Yes, the Pope is not that strong uh, in the fourth century. Um, yeah, and so you have this uh, persecution uh, going on east and west. And um, in fact, it goes on in the east uh, until 311 when the, edict, the Emperor Galerius, who is kind of falling ill, issues an edict of toleration, putting an end, at least uh, for the time being, to the persecution. Um, fairly grudgingly, um, some scholars uh, tend to think this is overdone. You shouldn't see it as a sort of universal cry of, well, now we're going to tolerate the Christians. It was more a sort of grudging recognition that it hadn't actually worked as of yet. Uh, and he dies in the year 311. However, his colleague, his Caesar, uh, Maximinus Dea, uh, will actually restart the persecution in the year 312, 313. So it goes on for a couple more years anyway, despite um, the ending of uh, uh, Galerius's reign in the east. So... Come to this, this is what, of course, where Constantine comes in, where he gets a reputation. Constantine is also one of the soldier emperors from the uh, borderlands. He's born in modern-day Serbia. And um, uh, he becomes emperor because uh, his father, Constantius Chlorus, was a colleague of Diocletian. In fact, he gets made um, in, um, in 305 into the... Um, uh, into the Augustus of the West. His father does. He becomes emperor in the West. Um, and um, and uh, Constantine was uh, um, supposed to have been uh, Caesar under him. It didn't actually work out that way. He became sort of um, uh, embittered by this. But after his father's death in the year 306, um, 
uh, his troops actually proclaim him to be the Western Emperor in 306, even though, and I won't go into this too much detail, there's a lots of, there are several claimants to the thrones in each half of the empire. So, in other words, Diocletian's plan to have these junior emperors succeed the senior ones, it kind of goes a little bit, a little bit of awry. Uh, nevertheless, he's very popular with his troops. He's a good soldier. Uh, he makes his bones both in Britain but also on the continent, uh, fighting against the Franks, one of those border peoples, in the uh, uh, in uh, on the continent. And what happens is that you have this split um, between um, the colleagues because in the year 305, Diocletian retires, goes off to his palace in um, in modern day Croatia, and says, "I'm done." And so what's going to happen, though, is his successor, Galerius, is going to um, fight with all the claimants for the Western throne. Um, and there are several of them. I won't go through this in too much detail. But it winds up that eventually uh, in 308, um, uh, Constantine has made Caesar under Licinius, who is the uh, emperor in the West. Uh, while a man named Maxentius, who uh, tried to claim the, uh, the throne in the, uh, in the West, uh, ensconces himself in Rome. Long story short, he never gets a title, but he basically manages to invade, uh, basically take over Rome and the provinces in southern Italy that support him there. Uh, and this state of affairs lasts till about the year 311. Uh, however, what happens is after a few years, uh, Maxentius' uh, reign will become repugnant to the people of Rome. He tries to raise taxes. That's always a bad idea. Um, and in fact, uh, Constantine waits patiently for his reign to break down. And this is where you, you have um, his march on Rome in the year 312, uh, comes down in, uh, into Italy uh, and defeats uh, Maxentius at the Battle of Million Bridge, as already described. Uh, and so takes control of the Western Empire basically on his own. What happens is, and I say this because I'll explain his uh, Licinius, his uh, um, co-ruler in a second, he, um, uh, they jointly issue the Edict of Milan a year after the Battle of Milan Bridge, which calls for a toleration for all religions within the Roman Empire, um, basically to all of them, uh, to sort of uh, end the peace this way. Uh, and in fact, what's going to happen is that Licinius will take over in the east, he'll become the eastern emperor, uh, Constantine will become emperor in the... Uh, in the West, for a few years, they will co-rule together the empire. But what happened? And he actually marries his sister off to uh, Licinius. What happens is that Licinius's attitudes towards Christian changes. He begins to start to persecute them around about the year 316. This was enough to prompt Constantine to put an army together. Uh, defeats him in 316. Um, several years later, he's finally totally defeated in the year 324, and Constantine becomes sole ruler of the empire. Um, and uh, all this coincides with, of course, the, um, the total reversal, of course, of the situation of the church in the Roman Empire. By the time he does this in 324, you know, the Christian church will be what it had never been before, a great land-holding institution, which has great wealth and all that other stuff. So this leads us finally to his actual conversion and the reasons behind it. Um, here, by the way, is the map of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Uh, you can go a lot of stuff up there, but uh, Milvian Bridge is on the Tiber, just in the northern part of the city up there. You can kind of see anybody ever been to Rome? Rome one or two. You can kind of see where this is at, generally speaking. But um, yeah, on the north side of the uh, of the uh, of the Tiber. And first thing to note about this is when we talk about his conversion, 
we didn't talk about what conversion meant in, um, uh, in that period, in the 4th century. Uh, Constantine more or less announces that he is now a follower of the Christian God when he comes back from the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. He does this, by the way, by um, omitting the traditional sacrifices to the gods when he comes back in for his triumph in Rome. Bless you. Because if you were to have a triumph, you would go and make you know, sacrifices like this. He doesn't do that. Uh, however, one of the reasons why people have debated so often the sincerity of his convictions is because he does not get baptized uh, until, his, until he's on his deathbed. Uh, and the first thing to note about this is that this is actually no real, um, this is no um, strike against him, because that was actually a common practice at the time. People delayed baptism to their death. Why? Baptism is supposed to wipe away all your sins, and people, recognizing that if they did that and then they sinned, they feared they would go to hell, so they waited until they were on their deathbeds to get baptized. There's logic to this, actually. So uh, it's nothing... Uh, 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 in his uh, thinking like this that made that sort of difficult thing. One of the other reasons, however, people kind um, of suspect uh, his um, conversion is that, well, it seemed like, well, maybe this was a good political move to embrace Christianity at that point. Christianity, I believe, has something like 5 million members by the time you get to the year 300 or so, something like this. There's so in the several millions. There's debates about the, about the number. Uh, it might seem like it's already survived some persecutions. There is some thought this was a mere political move uh, in many ways. Um, one of the other reasons is that, of course, you have these two accounts I mentioned earlier of Lactantius and later on Eusebius were his advisors that, uh, again, some historian, modern historians, some earlier historians, um, they tend to be skeptical about, uh, skeptical about. They seemed a little too good to be true, the dream, the vision, stuff like this. Um, in fact, whatever the actual um, uh, content of his beliefs, we'll get to this in a moment, uh, for the most part, modern scholars don't doubt his sincerity at all. This was, whatever else he thought he was doing, this was a conversion to the Christian religion. The debate, by the way, and nobody's ever going to settle this, is how well did he understand it? Was it really, uh, did he really understand it all that well? Those things are more debatable. Um, what he understood is that he thought... Uh, given a vision that would lead him to success and to unify the empire. And he took that as a sign that that was the true faith. Um, in um, more or less, and this is the thing, uh, uh, Lactantius especially is the more important of the two, because Lactantius was writing so close to the event, fairly shortly after it, uh, whereas Eusebius was writing much farther after this. So what does he do once he becomes <coughs> uh, emperor in terms of religious policies? One I already mentioned was, of course, the Edict of Toleration. Um, but he begins, again, as I mentioned before, uh, begins building um, uh, Christian buildings throughout the empire. Uh, he can build, uh, uh, build a new basilica. Uh, he creates a Christian church, the Lateran. He was at the Pope eventually. Um, he will, um, in fact, basically give, um, uh, build churches throughout uh, the Roman Empire all over the place. I'll show you some of them, many of them still in existence. Uh, um, he would dedicate a statue of himself uh, in the Forum, which uh, the inscription through this solitary sign, I have freed your city from the yoke of the tyrant, unquote, uh, meaning the yoke of uh, paganism. Uh, he began to put he began to put Christian symbols, such as the Cairo monogram, on monuments and coins about the year 312 or 313, uh, even though uh, you still had pagan symbols appearing on his coins until about the year 321. 
Um, the Arch of Constantine, if you've ever been to Rome to see that, uh, it also contains still some pagan, uh, pagan uh, imagery in it. So he doesn't initially um, necessarily see the contradictions and take those things off, or maybe he's just sort of waiting for the opportune moment, I'm not really sure. But the other thing about, uh, about, um, uh, about Constantine, but also about all Roman emperors, I mentioned before, is they tend to see themselves, even before the, his conversion, as sort of religious figures. They were responsible for the religious health of their subjects, and this didn't change uh, upon becoming pope. Um, he increasingly began to see himself almost sort of like, and I believe Eusebius calls him this, like a bishop uh, in our, something like our modern terms, someone who oversees the church, someone whose job it is to help the church to increase its unity, to do stuff like this. Uh, he recognized bishops as counselors of state. He extends legal rights to them, which they had never, certainly never had before. Um, he gives um, legal force to their, to their resolution of their civil suits. Uh, and he basically begins to involve himself in all the church's affairs. And uh, I won't go through too much of uh, too much of this. Uh, I'm going to save this for a later later uh, lecture. But of course, the most important thing he does is actually convene an ecumenical council of bishops. This is the Council of Nicaea. Um, I deserve his own separate lecture. But of course, he there had never been an ecumenical council before uh, before Constantine did this, and he does this uh, basically out of sort of a, a sense of duty. And by the way, he retained um, the office of Pontifex Maximus, which is of course uh, a pagan priesthood throughout the rest of his life. So he has this idea, which is again not always necessarily clear in his mind, separate from Christianity, that he is the sort of, if you like, high priest of the state in some ways. Um, yeah, and so I'll just go on to that. He also, of course, does one other major thing in terms of turning the empire Christian, which is that he builds a new capital. Uh, after his victory over Licinius in 324, he goes to the, the city on the Bosphorus named Byzantium. Uh, Bosphorus is in uh, modern-day Turkey, Istanbul, and changes its name to Constantinople, and decides to turn it into, uh, literally, a new Rome. And by new, he meant Christian Rome. Um, old Rome was still pagan. It had all these pagan shrines. He decided to actually move the entire seat of the government, the Senate, all of its uh, government, to this new place on the Bosphorus. Uh, in a letter to the East later in his career, uh, he spoke of his experience of God's providence and claimed a divine vocation to protect Christians in the East and the West. Um, and so he sees himself as this part of his new program to sort of convert all of his subjects in some ways. Um, again, there's still some ambiguity here if you want to talk about his, you know, the sincerity of his conversion. In the founding ceremonies of the new city in 328, he allowed imperial astronomers and pagan priests to perform their rites. Uh, in the form of Constantine at the very center, uh, a statue of uh, the emperor depicted as the Sol Invictus. The Sol Invictus is a pagan cult of the sun. Uh, was erected on columns. Uh, beneath that column, Constantine had Christian relics and uh, precious objects placed along with tokens of the ancient city under that uh, statue. Uh, he also has, of course, a great obelisk that was also planted there as well. I'll show you a picture of that. And um, nevertheless, when it was dedicated on May 11, 330, it was dedicated in the honor of the Christian martyrs. Uh, even, and even though you have, again, same time, you have allows uh, the construction of pagan temples to the goddess Rhea and to Fortune. Um, he prescribed any sort of sacrifices to go on in there, and he did not, not allow any of this sort of um, installation of the 
for example, the cult of the Vestal Virgins or any other pagan priesthoods in the, um, uh, in the new city. Um, and uh, in preparation for his death, on his deathbed, he had himself baptized by Eusebius, the Bishop of Nicomedia. Uh, and his body was, of course, brought to um, Constantinople when he died. So his, again, if you're wondering why there's you know, suspicion of about it, it's because there's not necessarily this total break in terms of the symbolism of his reign. But also because, again, a lot of these, um, um, a lot of these uh, early Christians waited for so long for baptism tends to create this impression that it wasn't sincere. Again, you can question whether it's, okay, did he have the best understanding of Christianity? Maybe not. And again, a lot of people in a lot of different places times didn't have a great understanding of Christianity. But that's where some of this actually comes from. Uh, and I actually want to mention two other things, actually, about uh, Constantine. Um, uh, he has been honored in the East. I don't I think want to say from the 4th century, but I don't really know, uh, as a saint for a very long, long time. In fact, he was given the title equal to the apostles by the Orthodox. Uh, so important is his uh, stature. And in fact, even in the West, uh, the Roman calendar never acknowledged him as a saint, but there were churches in the Middle Ages, particularly in uh, Britain and France, which actually were dedicated to his name. So he has been a popular figure throughout um, much of Christian history, if not all of it. And this is just a, a coin. Uh, it was actually uh, struck in 315. <laughs> uh, I think one of the first ones that actually has Christian imagery on it. You can't see maybe from that far away, but uh, silver coin. It probably wasn't mass-produced, probably only for his, his court, but you can kind of see what it looks like there, him taking on those trappings. Um, this is the obelisk uh, that was planted in the Hippodrome uh, in uh, Constantinople. It's still there today in Istanbul. Uh, you can see it's still through rough times, but it's still standing like a lot of um, the architecture he produced. And then this is, uh, pardon me, one of the most, maybe the most important one he built that still survives. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, uh, which he built uh, one of places was actually crucified there and buried uh, in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so you have this, uh, the, this conversion still has physical manifestations. Um, the effects of his conversion still have physical manifestations throughout uh, the world in many ways. But what about his legacy? Because this is where people really get, this is where it really comes into play, people's criticisms of Constantine. And one thing to note about this is that his image is being shaped in his lifetime. And in particular, Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian we've already talked about, is one of the ones who became a close advisor to him after his, uh, after, uh, uh, his uh, conversion. And um, he's the one who really plays up the early Christian idea that... Um, that quite literally, uh, in his in his works, he has two works mainly, the Ecclesiastical History, but also the life of Constantine, that Constantine was inspired by the idea that he had a divine mission to unify the uh, empire as a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, he's also the one, not also, he, this was actually even before he became his advisor, but he's also the one who portrays him as the new Moses, the new religious leader who's going to lead the Christian people to a new uh, new era. In ways that are, and again, I don't have time to go through this, I don't have any details right here, but they are quite striking in their uh, praise, let's put it that way, uh, for the man. who. And I haven't mentioned his personality, what kind of man uh, Constantine was. Um, I don't think it's too much to say the man could be really, really brutal. Um, 
I don't think it's too much to say he was a murderer in some ways. Uh, he was a really, really brutal, brutal guy. He was a soldier, as you'd expect. Uh, if you want uh, um, uh, examples of this, uh, before his death, he killed off many of the members of his immediate family because they were rivals to his own sons for to inherit the throne. Uh, this actually had consequences later on, but he uh, he could be extraordinarily uh, violent. Uh, this man could. Um, uh, and yet, I mean, there's almost nothing but praise for, for Constantine um, up until you, until, you, until you get to the high Middle Ages. And that's where criticism of him will come in. And um, that criticism comes mainly because of one thing, the donation of Constantine. Anybody know what the donation of Constantine is? This is, if you don't know, is a uh, forged document from probably the 750s, probably from the court of Pope Stephen II. Um, which was based on an actual work called The Legend of St. Sylvester from the 5th century, which uh, the donation purports to be a grant of essentially imperial authority from Constantine to Pope Sylvester I, um, in which he gives him all sorts of rights, claims uh, to civic authority. And um, this uh, forgery in the 750s, if you don't know the context of it, I can spend too much time on it, uh, was actually directed at the, at the time at Byzantine emperors. For long story short, the Byzantine emperors were not really capable at that point of um, defending popes anymore because they've been kind of cut off uh, from the West. Plus, uh, the Byzantine, Byzantine emperors were going through a crisis in the 8th century, the iconoclast crisis. So they weren't quite sure the popes were about the orthodoxy of these emperors. So somebody in the papal household probably forged this document to give the pope a measure of, uh, of if you like, uh, political independence from these Roman emperors, which will be used throughout the rest of the Middle Ages against Western monarchs and Western kings to try to, um, uh, to try to um, uh, to establish their independence vis-a-vis the state. But it has critics. Almost from the very beginning it had critics. Um, and in particular in the high Middle Ages, when you get to the 12th, the 13th centuries, 14th centuries, people who are perfectly orthodox are very critical of the donation of Constantine. Why? Because they're uh, concerned about the church's increasing wealth. In the high Middle Ages, the papacy becomes the powerful institution we're used to it being. And there are people like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Francis of Assisi weren't necessarily on board with all this. And of course you have uh, even someone like uh, Dante Alighieri in the um, in his Divine Comedy uh, actually has a part in the Inferno where he basically laments the fact that Constantine gave so much land and wealth to the Pope. And so the concern is um, about the church having all of this, if you like, worldly stuff, this worldly authority, this type of wealth and power which will get repeated by people who are less orthodox in the end of the Middle Ages, two people in particular. Uh, John Wycliffe, who was an English theologian, who was various regions uh, censured by the church, um, made the argument that the church should not any, own any property at all and blamed the donation of Constantine for what he thought of as a church's usurpation of the just rights of civic authorities. So he took a really radical stance on this. And you have similar critiques being made by Jan Hus, who was a bohemian Czech reformer in the 15th century uh, as well. And so the critique is, well, this donation, or eh, this goes back to his conversion, this power that was given to, supposedly, by, uh, to the Pope, to the Church, by Constantine, has corrupted the Church's evangelical mission. Uh, the Church should be... Um, 
The church should be poor. It should be impoverished like the apostles were. It's corrupted its primitive, uh, primitive nature, if you want to say that way, its original nature. This critique will in some ways be taken up by the Protestant reformers in the Protestant Reformation. Um, Partly by John Calvin, uh, the great um, reformed minister, who in uh, one of his treatises quote, claimed that, and I'm quoting here, quote, the sudden triumph of the church under Constantine was one of the principal causes of her corruption and the beginning of that compromise with paganism, quote unquote. Uh, and so he sees this as a corruption of the church's doctrine, its religious teachings. Um, other reformers, like Martin Luther, um, English reformers were ambivalent. They, and the reason being that Martin Luther and the English reformers depended upon the nation state uh, in England and in Germany to uh, to fund their reformation. So they may have criticized the Pope, but they actually kind of liked Constantine. In fact, in England, uh, Elizabeth I was actually portrayed, and I'll show you the picture in a moment, in um, the work of John Fox, was a long story of a publicist and a historian, as an English Constantine, because she, of course, uh, allowed the true faith to triumph, the Protestant faith to triumph in England. But the sect of uh, Protestantism that really does go in for criticizing Constantine and finding in his conversion the source of the church's corruption are the radical reformers of the uh, Reformation era. If you don't know what I uh, mean by that, we're talking about people like the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were people who uh, denied things like infant baptism. That's what Anabaptism mean, means rebaptism. So uh, you have to be, uh, they only practice adult baptism. Why? Because there's no infant baptism in the Bible, so they're consistent anyway. Um, and in fact, um, they also, by the way, that's the other thing about the Anabaptists and some of the radicals, is they also rejected any sort of affiliation between the church and the state. They, in particular, saw the alliance between Constantine and the early church as being the source point for its falling into what they saw as corruption and heresy. And this, by the way, is the image I was talking about. This is, the, uh, this is an image from the Axon uh, Monuments of the, of the English Martyrs by John Fox in 1563. And you kind of see, you don't see it there, so Elizabeth's on her throne, but there's this big C surrounding her. That's, C for Constantine, so depicting her as the new Constantine for the English. Which brings me finally to modern legacies of Constantine, modern ghosts. Um, probably the most, um, I don't say unique, but it's not even unique, the most interesting in some ways, are the beliefs of the, of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, whom part of their, this is their official doctrine as far as I'm aware, is that there was a great apostasy in which the teachings of the apostles were corrupted um, by the church once it sort of made its alliance with Constantine back uh, in the 4th century. Um, pretty intriguing. They make they single him out uh, as being the one uh, person who does this. But of course, if you think about Mormon beliefs, um, they have a, a sort of interesting rereading of these things, to say the very least. Um, Probably not a coincidence, by the way, that this shows up in uh, in in that particular religious body, since they're influenced, um, since they were born in the United States, which is a um, a country. It's a Protestant country, but it's influenced by the Free Church tradition, which has definite ties to the Radical Reformation. So that suspicion of, for example, church-state power, that suspicion of um, antiquity as being you know corrupting, right? The early Christian Church corrupted the message of the gospel feeds its way into uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Um, 
you also have uh, modern historians who, in general, um, I say in, I'm generalizing badly here, and I can't off the top of my head, to be honest with you, give you too many examples, but usually when Christian thinkers look back at the early church, they tend to lament uh, the fact that Constantine converted. Uh, many early Christian scholars tend to dislike what happened after Constantine. There's no longer, by the way, there used to be this really, really simplistic reading of his conversion as well. It, it, they took basically at face value that narrative that came out of the Reformation. Most of them know that it, it's not necessarily uh, as cut and dried, maybe as earlier thinkers thought it was. Um, but they definitely don't like uh, modern historians, modern, as you can imagine, secular historians, like the idea of the church having any power. Uh, that's something they think is, generally speaking, bad. Um, this also, of course, gets into inter-Catholic polemic. Uh, you may have seen something I posted on my Facebook page a few days ago before this. Um, there was a book, a best-selling book, I might add, uh, by, um, I've forgotten his first name, um, William Carroll? Carroll is the man's name. An ex-priest, a rather bitter ex-priest, if I might add, um, called Constantine's Sword, in which he blames the church's history, its alleged violence, uh, on the conversion of Constantine, who introduced, in his mind, a defective sort of corruption into the church's teaching about Christ um, because of this. And as you can, Im can imagine, this gets into the sort of culture war stuff you're familiar with, if you know anything about the contemporary church. Um, it's usually sort of used as a weapon for anybody that thinks that, well, the church should have this, you know, anybody that thinks the church should have a role in public life is basically, um, you know, um, um, some sort of, you know, uh, Constantinian warrior, basically, who uh, is a bad person or something. That's a term that's actually used sometimes to refer to this, people who prefer a cozy relationship between church and state. The word is Constantinianism, I know, as these big isms you get, but um, it's it, condemned by a lot of scholars who don't like that idea. Um, both, by the way, inter-Catholic inter polemic and uh, outside of it. And I wouldn't say it's generally speaking true that this generally breaks down, you know, liberal versus conservative theology. Generally speaking, this is a liberal um, trope of, you know, oh, Constantine's bad, that sort of thing, for the most part. But finally, just in terms of even beyond the views of Constantine I've talked about here, one of the things that's so momentous about Constantine is that it really is the, the first time the church had ever had to deal with the problem of, okay, what really should be our relationship to the state? Because, of course, the relationship, <laughs> its relationship was determined for it up until that time period. It was, of course, outlawed, and they were hated. Uh, so what happens when that's not the case? Um, and in particular, what should be that relationship, right? We all like to quote the passage from the gospel where Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But that doesn't actually necessarily help you when you're talking about what actually policies the church should pursue and those sorts of things. Um, and the fact of the matter is, ever since Constantine, this is where you get some of the critiques of this in the church's history, um, the general sort of um, operative um, uh, default, if you like, for most of the church's history has been it's better to have some sort of official um, relationship to the state than not. This, of course, in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, the 19th century, thrown in altar arrangements in 19th century Europe. This is where a lot of modern historians, even modern, I say conservative, say historian theologians don't like this much. Um, but the church has a long history of trying to at least um, get recognition for the state. For I think for 
I think for actually you can make a case for, for good reasons. Uh, one, to give one example of a relationship between um, modern governments and the uh, and the uh, the church. Uh, I hope everyone knows what concordats are. Concordats are agreements, diplomatic agreements signed between the Holy See and modern governments. They were used in the late part, latter part of the Middle Ages, but they became into their own really in the modern period. Um, and uh, yes, sir. Yes, well, I was going to mention three. That's one of them. And again, this is where criticism of the church's ideas come into play. The three that are usually most cited are the church's concordat with Napoleon, which didn't work because he didn't keep his promises uh, in the agreement, uh, with Mussolini, which uh, did work and still works. The concordat that was signed, it's called the Lateran Treaty, actually. It was signed between the papacy and the, the fascist government of Mussolini in 1929 still governs the relationship between the Italian state and the church in Italy to this day. Um, the other notorious one, of course, was the Concordat, the Reich's Concordat, that the uh, uh, church signed with Hitler and the Nazis in the 1930s. And again, if you're wondering why, why would the church take a chance and trust Mussolini or the Nazis to do what they're going to do. And the reasoning basically is this. Again, it goes back to the idea, it's better to have some something in concrete, some sort of official relationship with the state. So you have at least something to bargain with them for. And to give you an idea, by the way, of how this affects the church today, this idea that it's better to have some sort of relationship, kind of a controversial thing. Recently, the Vatican has entered into an agreement with the uh, People's Republic of China. Uh, and this, of course, scores very. People have been very critical uh, of the Pope for doing this. I have been myself, mainly because I don't see how you can trust the PRC. But again, again, the same thing was said, and I think rightfully so, of the Church in the 1930s. Why would you trust the Nazis to keep their promises? But and this is where I want to uh, enter in here is that the thinking, as far as I can understand it, behind the Vatican today of making this deal, which seems to have been a bad deal with uh, the Chinese, is. It's better to have some sort of official relationship. So at the least you have something to bargain with them for. Again, I'm not defending the actual uh, – I don't actually. I, I disagree with it. But I can easily see the, the idea behind it, which has fairly consistently been the main, I think, driver of the church's uh, attitude toward the state. Um, and so to wrap up – I'm trying to tie this up with a neat bow – uh, the conversion of Constantine is so important because it does introduce this idea of, well, power. What's the church's relationship going to be to power? Because a lot of what we do, of course, in the church today is voluntary, right? You know, nobody, nobody has a, you know, a whip over your head telling you to go to mass. Uh, maybe it would help. I don't know. But uh, you get the idea. It's not necessarily something that's const you're constrained to do, but... <laughs> But if you are going to exist in this world, you really cannot avoid it, I don't think. Not only dealing with power, but also the idea that you're going to be a church, for example, and let's say the church's mission to, uh, to um, tend to the poor, right? This is a big emphasis of the current pontificate. It's a big emphasis of, uh, I think, any, you know, buddy that thinks of themselves as a Christian. You know what you need in order to help the poor? What's that? Money and lots of it. There's really no way to avoid the corrupting influence of that. You're just going to have to deal with it. You're probably also going to have to deal with governments one way or the other. And I say this because my own, my own uh, inclination is to run for the hills and get the hell away from it as soon as possible. But I don't think it's necessarily all that, um, all that possible or realistic. Um, and that's why we are still talking about Constantine until this day. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. That is the end of the lecture.